I want to thank you for uh, praying for my wife, who sustained the surgery about a week and a half ago. Uh, they always give you all sorts of possible outcomes, you know, worst case scenario, best case scenario. And for these last 10 days, she has been consistently tracking at the top end of the best case scenario. And so I thank you. That's through your prayers and, and the mercy of God. And we're, we're happy uh, for, for that. Um, we're finishing up. Hebrews chapter 11 today, verses 32 to 40. It's reproduced in your copy of the, script, of the bulletin, or you can follow along in your copy of, of the scriptures. Uh, I would have planned six or eight more sermons uh, here at the end of Hebrews 11, uh, but there just isn't uh, time. Uh, so to the text. What more shall I say? I do not have time uh, to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. As I've said before, this whole chapter is frequently referred to as faith's hall of fame, uh, but it has made me wonder why it isn't more appropriately known, or seemingly so, as faith's hall of failures. I want you to think about uh, these characters. Uh, uh, think about these so-called heroes of the faith. Uh, we have Abraham, who lied and exposed his wife to the risk of being sexually violated. Not once, but twice. We have Jacob, who knowingly, intentionally plotted, conspired, and planned, and deceived his father into giving him the blessing that was rightfully his older brothers. Think about Moses, who was a murderer and murdered an Egyptian overlord and had to flee because his murder was found out. Think about David, who committed adultery and then had his most trusted soldier, whose wife he had violated, murdered, basically, 
on the front lines, planned for his demise in the heat of battle. You have a converted prostitute, Rahab. These are the heroes of the faith. (laughs) And yet, in reflecting on their lives, it really does seem like these would be embarrassments to the faith. Why are they there? How did they come to qualify for this list known as Faith's Hall of Fame? I think there are at least two reasons why these are there and singled out by the writer of Hebrews. First of all, it is this, because all of their failures, and there were many, magnify the grace of God. It's the grace of God through their faith that in spite of their failures, they succeed and overcome great obstacles. But then secondly, and I think more importantly, more relevant really to the text, why are they there? It is because they never quit trusting God. They failed, but they never quit. They never stopped. They never left off from believing in God even when they failed. The Christian life is not about never failing. The Christian life is about never giving up, never giving in, never leaving off from following Christ and trusting Christ and believing in Christ and loving Christ even after you have failed. The hymn isn't, great is our faithfulness. (laughs) The hymn is, great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And so this last section begins with the triumphs of faith in verses 32 to 35. And the writer lists these under several headings, several different descriptions without names, But I think, for the most part, when we read the descriptions, we can guess or even know which are the names of God's saints and great heroes of the faith who fit these descriptions. First, conquered kingdoms. That would surely be Joshua and David. Enforced justice. Obtained promises. They administered justice. That means they wrought righteousness. They drove out idolatry and idol worship, and they established righteousness, holiness, and the worship of the one only true and living God. They obtained promises. Joshua fought and won because that's what God promised. Gideon fought and won because that's what God promised. Joshua fought and won because that's what God promised. David became king and expanded the kingdom because that's what God promised. They obtained these promises in spite of difficulty, hardships, and struggles. They obtained the promises of God. Stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the power of the fire. Hello? (laughs) We know who that is. That's Daniel and his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I confess, one of my favorite passages of Scripture is Daniel 3, 16 to 18. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be cast into the fiery furnace and burned alive because of their refusal 
to bow down and worship idols. And this is what they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods and we will not worship the image of gold that you have set up. I think that's as good as it gets if you want a clear articulation of faith and trust in God. God is able to save us from this, even if you throw us in. But he hasn't promised that he will. And even if he doesn't, we will not capitulate. We will not compromise our faith because God will either save us from death or he will save us through death, one or the other. And dear friends, I believe that faith in God is not as much knowing what he will do as it is believing what he can. Can do. Heavenly Father, I believe that you can cure my loved one of cancer. I don't know if you will, but I believe you can. That's why I'm praying. And fill in the blank, whatever difficulty, whatever distress, uh, whatever anxiety, whatever fear. Nothing is impossible with God. That's faith. Knowing and believing that without understanding what the outcome will be, but knowing that he alone can influence the outcome. That's faith. That's why we seek him. Going on, escape the edge of the sword. Elijah and David, in different occasions, escaped the edge of the sword by fleeing. They ran away from those who were seeking to kill them. Were made strong out of weakness. It seems to me that could be a reference to the end of Samson's life who, being sapped of all of his supernatural strength and one last act of faith in his weakness, his inability to barely climb the steps of the idolatrous temple, in his weakness is given strength to push the pillars apart and bring the whole temple down. Became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, I think that helps us remember that faith is not the elimination of opposition. It is overcoming opposition. Not mighty because they didn't have to go to war, but mighty in war and putting foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead back by resurrection. That could be a reference to Elijah raising the son of the widow of Zarephath. That could be a reference to Elisha uh, raising the son of the woman in Shunem uh, who who came back to life from the dead. And so we have this all these powerful triumphs of faith being made strong in weakness, putting armies uh, to flight, seeing people raised from the dead, all of these glorious works of God. That's what it's all about, you know, the glorious works of God parting the Red Sea, bringing down the walls of Jericho, and on and on and on. The powerful triumph of 
faith, the victory of faith in the lives of all of these and witnessing these great works of God not being consumed by the flames because of the power of God through the faith of his people. But halfway through verse 35, again, there's this, you know, head-snapping turn in the list. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Yuck. They were killed by the sword. They went about and so on and so forth. And so after this list of the powerful triumphs of faith, what he gives us is the persecuted tribute of faith. The persecuted tribute of faith. God can spare you and rescue you and deliver you and make you victorious over kingdoms and fires and swords and lions all according to God's purpose and God's glory. God can do that. We have the biblical testimony of him doing that time and time again. But we we need to know this, that God's purposes can be accomplished and his glory magnified by being killed by the sword or eaten by the lions or devoured by the flames. The determining factor in the outcomes of all of these, whether it be delivered from the mouths of lions or shred to pieces by the mouths of lions, the determining factor is what will bring greater glory to God? Deliverance or suffering for righteousness' sake. They are equally commendable in the sight of God, in each individual instance or circumstance, each individual instance or circumstance that you're facing, that I face, what will bring greater glory to God? And guess who decides and determines what that is? Not us. God determines that which will bring him the greatest glory. These horrible things... And they are horrible things. Stoned, killed by the sword, sawn in two, mocked, ridiculed, imprisoned, deserted, forced to flee and and live. These horrible things are because of the presence of faith, not because of the absence of faith. They're because of the presence of faith, not because of the absence of faith. And the outcome is always commended by God. This whole chapter is all about what does God commend. I didn't go back, but if you go back to those first six verses, you'll see it, that God commends uh, faith. Without, possi- without faith, it is impossible uh, to please God. This is how he commended the saints of old. The consequences are always commendable. Verse 39, all these, it says all these, it's really going back through the whole list, All these were commended for their faith. The triumphant and the tortured. The conquerors and the cruelly treated. 
As I said, those who stopped the mouths of lions and those who were torn to shreds by the mouths of lion, they are all, all commended for their faith. And so we never determine what you might call the level of a person's faith based on the outcome of their life or the consequences of their faith. You know, some, some say, and in a certain sense it's true, faith always gets the victory. Okay, yeah, faith always gets the victory depending on what you mean by that. Because some have used that phrasing, faith always gets the victory, and what they mean is this, faith always gets the victory, faith always delivers, faith always rescues, it always delivers you from the flames, it always causes the blind to see, it always causes the lame to walk. That's the victory of faith. Oh, really? Every time, without exception? Tell that to Johnny Erickson. And then tell me where her faith is lacking. I believe in heaven that I will be there by the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus Christ, and I'll be way in the back with one of those cardboard telescopes, you know? And up there will be the Lord Jesus Christ and Johnny Erickson, you know, and I'll be way in the back, you know? And, the, well, Dave, we're glad you're here, but you smell like smoke. You know, just barely making it. Just bar- barely, barely making it. No, f- faith always gets the victory, but it's the victory through God's eyes, not what we think may be the victory. Also, I could use anybody as an illustration, but I wanted to use Samson, and I could have used really almost anyone on this list, but just think with me for a minute about Samson. He was immature, self-centered, arrogant, lustful, prideful. That's who Samson was, if you read his, his story. And yet God acknowledges and commends Samson with all these horrible character flaws and actions. And he's commended for his faith, even when it's mixed with failure. God doesn't commend everything all these people do. He doesn't commend all of everything that we do. But faith, even when it's mixed with failure, is commended by God. That's what God commends. Our faith, even with our failures, is still commended. And, and this is where, you know, you just need to go back again to the intent of the letter. You know, we, we just, just put the letter back in its context. Believing Jewish Christians who were being persecuted for their faith and sorely tempted to quit following Jesus because of the horrible pressures and stress, sometimes to death, often by their fellow Jews for their following Christ. They were about to stop and and say, I just need to go back to the old covenant ways. And this letter, the whole letter, but this chapter really especially, is to administer encouragement and comfort. Comfort in their affliction, but encouragement. To stay, to stay with it. And that's why the list includes these flawed individuals, is for their and our encouragement. Faith in Christ is not some unattainable, you know, super saintly level of sanctification that none of us could live up to if that were the case. 
That would not be encouraging. It would not be encouraging to me, at least. So you need to have the faith, like these, who never sinned and never failed and never were backslidden and never had doubts and never had fears and never... That's the kind of faith you need to have, Dave. Well, then forget it. <laughs> I, I can't do it. I can't. But no, you know, Abraham, Samson, David, the adulterer and murderer is still there? It's like, okay, yeah, I haven't murdered anybody or committed adultery against anybody. Okay, not physically. Mentally, we won't go there. But, uh, you know, it's like, right, these flawed individuals are commended, not for their flaws, but for their faith. And so the encouragement, the whole, again, the whole letter is don't. Don't stop following Christ. Don't stop believing in Christ. Don't give in. Don't give up. And at the end, what we should think about is which of these, at the end of their lives, regretted their faith in God? Which of these are in heaven, looking around at where they are and thinking with the glory of God in sinless perfection, No more illness, no more sickness, no more death, no more crying, no more mourning. The forgiveness of their sins, I think it was in one of our hymns, in the snowy white robes of Christ's righteousness, not their own, of course, and free from all of life's ills. Which one of them are up there now walking around saying, really, I suffered for this? This is it? This is all I got? Which of them is living in regret? Is Abel? Is Enoch? Is Noah? Is Moses? Is David? No. Not one of them regrets their faith in God. In fact, to a man and woman, I am sure they would say, if I had suffered a hundred times worse than what I suffered for this, it would be more than worth it. It would be more more than worth it. And so at the end of the chapter, it says they were commended for their faith, even though they didn't receive what was promised. They received the promises, and they were given descriptions of the promise in types and shadows and rituals and sacrifices, and they believed in the promise, but they didn't receive the promise because the promise is Christ. They didn't live to see the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in a certain sense, they lived and died and really looked from heaven in envy on us who have seen the fulfillment of all of God's promises. They all find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of sinners who comes to forgive the sins, all the sins of all those who turn to him in faith believing, suffering on the cross, the wrath of God in judgment for the sins we committed, not the sins he committed. He didn't have any. No, he's dying in our place voluntarily, suffering the penalty and the punishment that we deserved for the sins we have committed, and then being raised back to life from the dead to prove that he is who he said he is and that what he did was sufficient and acceptable to the Father for paying all of our sins. They're they're all paid for in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the promise they looked forward to and believed in. 
but they never saw it. And so God has postponed the culmination of the ages until those after Christ could be brought in to share the joy and the glory of the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. What then, you just wrapping up, what, what is the message for us? The message for us is Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 1. At the end of all of this, the writer says, Therefore, see how it leads right in? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and he's listed the witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so closely clings, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There it is, the exhortation to the saints reading this and to us here today. Run the race with endurance. It doesn't say win the race. It says run the race. Persevere. Hang in there. Stay with it. Don't give in. Don't give up. But I've failed. I've fallen. And I can't get up. (laughs) God will help you get up if you cry out to him. It's not falling that determines failure. It's not falling down that makes failure in the Christian life. It's staying down. No. It doesn't matter how many times we fall or fail. If we get up again, God will wash us, cleanse us, purify us, forgive us, dust us off, put us back on course to run the race with, with in, endurance. I, re, I read one commentary once, and, and the author of the commentary said that he believed even, even the Greek words employed in this text, Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, or Jesus uh, the founder and, and perfecter of our faith, and in this context, said, you know, that could be legitimately translated, Jesus, the starting line and finish line of our faith. I love that. Because the whole imagery is the Roman Colosseum and the Olympic Games and the races being run before the cheering throngs. And Jesus is the starting line. We can't get in the race without starting with Jesus. But Jesus is also the finish line upon whose you know, person, our eyes are fixed as we run the race. The Christian life, almost for all of it, is not how you start. It's how you finish. In fact, it's not even how you start. It's whether you finish. My friends, to finish the race with endurance, to persevere, to stay with Christ until life's final breath will find us on the victory podium just as if we had won. With Christ hanging the gold medal of endurance around our necks. And and when he does, we will immediately 
take the ribbon, remove it from our necks, and hang it on him. Because we know, Lord, it was not me. It was you. It was only by your grace that I was able to persevere and endure by faith. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the encouragement to our hearts that need encouragement in in the race that we are to endure set before us, which is different for every person in this room. It's not the same race, but it's tailor-made for what we need and what brings you the greatest glory. And so enable us by your grace to keep us trusting to keep us believing, to keep us following. We pray in your name. Amen.